Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and I'm with, who are you? Gary Bain. Who are you? I'm Gary Bain. And we're at your ass. Ah, my ass. Surrounded by the flies and desolation of... Your ass. Uh, My ass, yeah. Now, uh, so let's get on with it. Well, what are we doing this week, Gary? Well, this week it's uh, the continuance of the series on the Fife and Forfa Yeomanry. And, and they're advancing to Germany. Oh, that's quite good. I, I look forward to this. And this is related. We just mentioned it, apropos of nothing, but uh, my book, uh, Burning Steel, about the 5D4 files, is, uh, has recently had a price drop, and you can get it for £12.50 on Amazon. And you can have that good feeling of knowing that you're not contributing anything towards Her Majesty's government because they don't pay tax, do they? No, or you could wait a few months and get it in a bargain bucket. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. That's all right, mate. You've undermined my sales pitch there. It'll be next to laugh or cry. Now, uh, the last episode, we, were, we, we dealt with the second 54 fars, and uh, they got back to Eeps after their Christmas holidays. Where they spent their Christmas holidays? Yeah, I'm not sure I called it a Christmas holiday. It was the Ardennes and the oh. uh, uh, Battle of the Bulge, as it's colloquially known. You have known. a bit of a Battle of the Bulge, don't Yeah, you? I'm losing. <laughs> yeah, me too at the moment. And it's because the new Comet tanks had arrived. Ooh. Now, they create a really good initial impression on the, the, on the officers, the, the NCOs and the men, because uh, they are a step up on the Sherman. I think denigration of the Sherman is foolish. We both think the Sherman is a useful tank. It's got its faults. Uh, it killed a lot of people indirectly on both sides, I think it would be fair to say. But uh, they, they, they'd lost the men, and I don't care what the experts say about the Sherman's feeling the men had lost confidence in the Sherman, hadn't they? They, they? they didn't feel happy with it. Yeah, I'm just wondering why experts have that strange way of speaking. Yeah, they're, they're wankers. Well, this is what Lieutenant Alex Gilchrist... Sorry, I just realised what you said. <laughs> this is what Lieutenant Alex Gilchrist of uh, Two Troop B Squadron has to say. It was a proper tank. I loved the Comet tank. From the day I first saw one, I fell in love with it. I thought it had everything that I was expecting in a tank. From the moment I got into it, I felt more confident. I had something around me I could trust. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, Charlie Workman, who we've been following his career, so to speak, with the 5D4 fires, right the way through. And uh, this time he was one troop C squadron. And he's another admirer of the Comet, isn't he? And he says this, very favourable. The Comet was a lower-lying, more compact tank than the Sherman. It had a Rolls-Royce engine. Faster, with a bigger gun, the 77mm. It was armoured reasonably well. It hadn't quite the space inside that the, that the Sherman had, but the ammunition was much better protected. It had a heavy lid over the bin where the shells were kept. And uh, that, 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 you know, it, it, he's keen, and he's an experienced officer. Uh, is that gun, the 77mm, the one that the Firefly had, the, the Sherman Firefly? I'm not sure it's exactly the same. It's 17 pounder though. It's similar, yes. Now, driver Ron Forbes, he certainly appreciated the extra engine power ah, amidst the whole package of improvements on the Sherman. And this is what Trooper Ron Forbes of 4 Troop B Squadron says. The Comet was a revelation to us. The speed was something we enjoyed. The acceleration was terrific. You could take off very quickly. 
It was governed to 42 miles per hour, but you could get up to 45. On a slope, up to 50. The non-maintenance engine, it was a Rolls-Royce engine, same engine as the Spitfire, it was sealed. There was nothing to do on it. Never had a bit of trouble. A better gearbox, changing gear was easier. It was a better vehicle mechanically all round. The armour was thicker, the turret was cast, it was solid. The 77mm gun fired a 17-pounder shell, same as the Firefly, but we all had it. You felt this is what you wanted from the start. If you'd had this from the start, it would have been a little bit pleasanter war. Well, yeah, but you can't have... I mean, things can't be there until they're there. I think they were the first unit equipped with it, Comet, so it, it is. It's a far more modern tank, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to note that it, it had the same engine as the Spitfire. I mean, that's quite incredible, really. Yeah. Uh, it's high technology, isn't it? Yeah. Now, overall, the Comet was a far more modern tank with a high-technology, precision-engineered engine. Ooh. Now, that meant basic routine maintenance was easy enough, but if anything serious went wrong, they'd have to go back to more highly qualified engine fitters in the brigade fitter workshops. And you're going to tell us what Trooper Doug Hayes of the fitters section of A Squadron says. You'd never be in a fitter section, would you? <laughs> Just ask. Oh, dear, he's gone into his silent mode. There's no comparison. They were a much more powerful engine than the Merlin. It was a D-rated fighter aircraft engine. Really, the Merlin? They were an excellent engine, but we could hardly touch them. They were nearly all sealed off by Rolls-Royce. They were beyond our technical expertise, and our fitters would very seldomly touch them. They could... Have a go. They could have a go at the Sherman tanks because they were built in a very rugged sort of way, but certainly not the Merlins. They were a very sleek piece of engineering. They very seldom gave trouble, but nevertheless, if they did, it wasn't a job for us. It was a job for Brigade. Yeah. There was lots of difficult words in that, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, I managed Pete? to get most of them wrong. And it hasn't got hyperbole in there. How do you say that, Gary? Hyperbole. Now, as a gunner, John Buchanan was pleased with the general performance of the 77mm gun. However, they were all aware that the 77mm AP shells, that's armour-piercing shells, still did not have the means of penetrating the armour of either the Panther or the Tiger. But, but, the hitting power was increased, wasn't it? That's, that's the crucial point. It is a better gun. Now, what does Trooper John Buchanan, 4 Troop A Squadron, what did he have to say about the gun? It was a good gun. It could take on a Mark IV and destroy it. It could stop a Panther. Maybe not penetrate, but it could stop it. We put a German Panther we'd captured out on the range and we fired at it. The shells wouldn't go through. We felt a wee bit despondent because of that. But we went to the tank afterwards to have a look at it. And although the shells hadn't gone through, they'd left a bulge where the AP shell had hit it. The officer said, well, it's not going to go through, but if you're sitting in a tank and you get belted by one of these APs, you're not going to be very happy. You'll probably bail out. Still couldn't get the Tiger. Now, this next point, and, and, and the thing about tank design is it's a balancing act, isn't it? And, and, and you, you, you were thinking about HMS Invincible. Well, you think about HMS Invincible and sailors quite a lot. I am aware of that. But you, you wanted to say, just make a point here. Well, similarly to, to uh, the, the battleships and, and the battle cruisers, uh, if you improve performance in one area, it meant a commensurate sacrifice somewhere else or a likely loss in manoeuvrability and speed through increased weight. And that was exactly the same problem that the Navy faced. And it and, and it's, it's illustrated by the fact that the Tiger, everyone goes on about, but it, it had dreadful, it was so heavy, it wasn't as manoeuvrable as something like the other thing. Uh, and, you know, it's like the Comet. Even the, even the old Sherman could turn its turret around faster, which meant it was quicker to respond to a sudden tank appearing somewhere else. It's all quite interesting, isn't it? Um, now, um, so when are the 54 fires ready for war again? Well, by early March, generally, they were considered to be once more ready for and war. What lies ahead of them? Well, the invasion of Germany was beckoning. Come, come, it was saying. Um. And you're going to, to relate what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of 1 Troop C Squadron says. Our state of mind at that time, we were used to death. We considered we were the tops. We were a good regiment. We were in a good division. And we knew we were about to go into Germany. So there was no stopping us. 
Well, he's right. They were good. I remember the South Not Tazars said, uh, so when do we start the atrocities? <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Well, it was one of the sergeant majors, as I recall. Well, it was, yeah. Now, on the 12th of March, as they waved a metaphorical tear-stained handkerchief to the good burgers of Eeps. The good what of Eeps? Burgers. I like a good burger. You do, do you? Uh, their first destination was the small town of Montegu. I think that's how it's pronounced. Now, they, they, they settle in there, and <clears throat> what do you think they start to do? What does any tank regiment do when it's got a new tank? Uh, they begin work on the various alterations that they'd identified were needed on the comet. So what kind of thing? No, oh, well, actually, before we start on that, the, let's just mention something that appears in Steel Brownie's uh, uh, memoirs. Uh, where do you think they billeted the fitters? Just have a guess in Montague. Uh, I think they were billeted in the premises that were acting as the local brothel. And did this cause any problem? None at all. Found it a bit difficult to get them up in the morning. <laughs> If you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> oh, dear. And you do this so well. So you're going to be Captain William Steel Brownlee of HQA Squadron. Well, once he got the fitters up. <laughs> he said this. There were no official modifications to the There comments. were official modifications. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There were. I'm so excited by all those... Things. There were official modifications to the comets, like taking all the tracks off and fitting a new part to each sprocket and idler, plus many more. There were unofficial modifications, like fixing bins and boxes to the outside to leave more room inside. The comet was cramped compared to the Shermans. We, the users, increased the capacity of 60 rounds per tank to 85, and that of machine gun ammo by over 50%. All this with no loss of living space. Why hadn't the designers consulted us? And this is the eternal thing. Whenever you, It's like when the SE5 arrives on the Western Front, it becomes the SE5A, because the 56 squadron who had it first made a whole load of adaptions that made it better um i, I find that you notice reference there to the cramped because it, it's not as big it's not as tall it's lower there's less space and that's one of the things you were mentioning it you know you can't have everything so no. it's, cr it's a bit cramped so what do they do for the rest of that uh, reasonably dry and sunny month then pete I've no idea well <laughs> they're put through their paces in oh, a series of troop i should have guessed squadron and finally regimental tactical exercises which were held in conjunction with companies of their old friends the 8th rifle brigade and the 1st Hereford. fine bodies of men uh, so now uh, why is it so crucial that uh, that infantry and tanks work together what do you think had given them a bit of a clue as to why it was important well i think you're referring to the failure of cooperation at uh, epsom yeah um, yeah and the tanks and infantry, they'd, they'd mastered a variety of methods subsequently to work together to best effect. Now, in general terms, what this means is the leading squadron of the, of the regiment would push on alone with the other two squadrons following up. But each of them would carry a company of infantry clinging to the back of the tanks, uh, about 12 men on each tank. Uh, that, it's quite a lot. And this is what uh, Trooper Ron Forbes described this as. He was then in four troop B squadron. Taxi service. Taxi. To save the infantry having to embark on trucks to catch up, you had your infantry on your tank. It was handy to have them there because when you met an obstacle or were fired on, the best people to clear it was the infantry on the ground. The Herefords were with us most of the time. Sometimes there would be a rifleman on the front, sitting, talking to the driver. As long as there was no stuff flying about, it was quite friendly. Now, Major Pinky Hutchison, our favourite, uh, uh, Douglas is his real name, but uh, it's one of those rare nicknames that I really like. Uh, and he, he, he explains exactly why it was so essential to have them close at hand, especially in the later phase of the campaign as they go into Germany. Why is it? Well... The main threat, what's the main threat then, do you think? What is it? Is it the Panzer? Is it, is it the 88mm gun? Is it the self-propelled gun? What is it, Gary? Well, no, it, it's now the real threat was the humble Panzerfaust. Ooh. So, bazooka, bazooka. or rocket-propelled yeah. thingy. Rocket-propelled thingy, yes. And this is Major Douglas Hutchison of A Squadron. The bazooka, which the Germans were perfecting, was a very effective weapon against tanks. It could knock out a tank very easily and was fired at very close range so that it was difficult to uh, misfire from a ditch into the side of a tank, which is what it generally did. 
If there was infantry around, they could be the greatest help as protection. We were working ever more closely with the infantry. When we were out of contact, contact, the first squadron of tanks would be operating separately in front. The next squadron would have the infantry on the top of the tanks, which is basically as you described it, Pete. Yeah. Uh, so that they were ready to deploy to one side or the other to help clear the obstructions. The remaining infantry would be on lorries, ready to mount the tanks if need be. We worked particularly closely with the Herefords throughout that period. Colonel Scott got on very well with their commanding officer and they moved together. It worked very well working with the same battalion, knowing the same officers. One got to know them. That was a great help. It was the most sensible way to operate and to push on. It enabled us to do, uh, do so much faster than we would otherwise have been able to do. Now, that, that's interesting. So, infantry cooperation, much better. Who else do you think it's important that the tanks cooperate with? Come on, come on. You'll start for 10. Oh, I presume you're uh, referring to the Royal Artillery. Yep, and they are still, in my view, the, 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 the people who rule the battlefields a bit. I mean, they're, they're incredibly important. And it's not just because I've got my book at close range on the South Nazis to sell. Although that helps. It does help. Uh, but let's, let's hear from Major Douglas Hutchison. Pinky. Come on, Pinky. As likely as not at squadron headquarters, we would have an OP from the field gunner regiment who was supporting our group. <clears throat> He'd have one set on our net so that we could talk to him and another set going back to his guns. So one could get far, not only from one's own support regiment, but also, if need be, from the regiment supporting the other brigade group if there was a sufficient priority target. And you might even be able to get the support of medium artillery that was within range. If we didn't have an OP near us, we did develop a technique for directing fire ourselves. A fairly rough and ready system, but as long as you could pinpoint the place and give a six-figure map reference of the target, then they would put a round down and you would correct that by saying, one, 100 yards northeast, or whatever the direction you judged it to be, and try to bracket the target in that way. It worked up to a point. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it, it would help, wouldn't it? Now, uh, when did they finish your training? It was a, roughly speaking 28th of, uh, of March, uh, and uh, they're, they're then ordered back into the front line. What's been going on, Gary? I mean, you're a bit of an expert on this period, <laughs> as am I. It's, uh, I find all these campaigns incredibly complicated, this phase, and uh, we don't pretend to be Just experts. cut out the hyperbole. Stop saying hy hyperbole, Gary. Well, what you're referring to was in the interval, the 21st Army Group... That's that Montgomery's Army Group. ...had launched Operation Veritable to clear the area of ground between the Mars and the Rhine, so pushing southeast from the Nijmegen sector. It was a good campaign to miss, <laughs> full as it was across low-line land and uh, a contrasting maze of dikes, streams, low ridges and thick woods with the margins deliberately flooded by the Germans. So not, not helpful, are they? No. Now, on 23rd of February, the American 9th Army joins the fray and it launches Operation Grenade uh, with a crossing of the Roa River and they're thrusting to the uh, northwest to take Venlo and Mönchengladbach. And that, uh, where's Mönchengladbach? Just placed on the map for me, Gary. In Germany. I used to go shopping in uh, Venlo. I was based near Mönchengladbach. That's fascinating. And and where where is Mönchengladbach in relation to the Rhine? Well, it's just across the Rhine, near the great German city of Dusseldorf, which is the uh, airport that I flew into. Oh, God. It's all about me. <laughs> Now, these two offensives are meant to link up, aren't they? And, and they do. And they force the Germans to retire across the, 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 the Rhine uh, by the 10th of March, uh, 1945, just in case we haven't actually mentioned that, but it should be clear by context. Well, so what's next? Then? What could lie ahead of them that might be a spot of problem? Well, crossing the Rhine itself. Uh, that's, Is that a big, splashy thing? <laughs> yeah, it's no minor undertaking. It's uh, roughly 500 yards wide. It was in flood. And uh, just on the other side, uh, there were Germans lying in wait. Are they uh, pre preparing some sort of reception? Welcome to Germany? Yes, probably. And all told, it was a logistical nightmare. Now, logistics is, 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 as we know from our good friend Rob Thompson, it's absolutely crucial. So what sort of logistical problems specifically are, we, are the British Army, 21st Army Group and the 5D4 fires facing? Well, behind them, the Mars still had to be properly bridged. Rail and road communications restored and extended. 
hundreds of special amphibious DD floating tanks and Buffalo infantry carriers deployed. They have to get them forward and, yeah, get them ready. Yeah. Huge artillery concentrations coupled with mass bombing reduce key German defensive locations to rubble. So you have to get all the artillery forward. You've got to get the ammunition forward. You've got to sight them. We talked about that with the South Dutchers. They actually began to run out of spaces to put the guns, didn't they? Yeah. Now, whole towns, whole towns such as the communications hub of Vessel, were almost erased from the map. I'm glad you said that, because that's not how I would have pronounced it. Weasel. <laughs> oh, dear. So, uh, 23rd of March, 21st Army Group begin Operation Plunder. With a, uh, you know, Sorry, are they being led by a pirate? Yes. Uh, a series of Rhine crossings, uh, and that's in conjunction with Operation Varsity, uh, which is uh, well, it's an airborne strike, our first uh, Allied airborne army, um, which we glide past now. <laughs> German opposition was variable. I'm very pleased that joke. But the fateful step had been taken and the final campaign had begun. Oh, dear, that was really poor. Sorry. The second 54 fires crossed the Rhine at first light on the 29th of March. So we're making this quite... This is about a week later, isn't it? So this is they're not in the forefront. The, 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 the bridgehead's been made. And they crossed by means of a pontoon bridge created by the apparent, apparently indefatigable royal engineers. Would you like to explain to you what a pontoon bridge is and why this might be a bit of an undertaking, and possibly when I say undertaking? Well, I, I mean, particularly if you're in a tanker, I, I presume, it, it sort of sinks because it's, it's basically on boats. It's floating. And sort of track way across boats? Yeah. And tanks? Quite heavy. Ooh. Now, now because of that... What would happen if they fell off? They'd sink. Now, because of that, the uh, the crossing proved a frightening undertaking. Yeah. Now, uh, so you're going to be trooper. You're going to say what? To, you, well, you're going to no, be I'm going him. To be him. I'm going to live, trooper Terry Boyne. Four troop base squadron. The Rhine is a very wide river. These pontoons, as you actually got onto it, the pontoon would disappear under the water. So the water was lapping the bottom of the tracks. The drivers were just looking ahead. They had to keep a certain spacing to offset the weight, I guess. Going across each pontoon and watching the thing disappear under the water wasn't a very pleasant sight. Then they'd pop back up. I was quite pleased to get to the other side, that's for sure. <laughs> now, Charlie Workman, he was, uh, he was a tank commander, so he's higher up in the Comet, and he's got a driver. His driver's called Hutchinson, who, by the way, is quite a character in the book. He was a right scally. Um, now, uh, he found he's a uh, one-troop sea squadron, and he finds it absolutely nerve-wracking. He says this, I think I was the first over. It was his pontoon bridge, and the, these were Comets. Heavier tanks. I said to Hutchinson, for God's sake, I'm not a good swimmer. Take it easy. As we got on the pontoon bridge, rows of little boats all strung together, and we started going over. It dipped. Hutchinson would make comments. It's a bloody fast river, that. Never mind the bloody river, Hutchinson. Just get us to the other side, will you? Drama. Absolute. Now... However, Workman soon recovered his spirits once he got to the other side because he was now in the Rhineland, the heart of Germany. And his reaction was typical. When we get when we got to the other side, boy, this is Germany. This is us really in Germany now. That was a great feeling. We've taken all this hammering from the Germans and here we are now. Here's us giving them what they've been giving everybody else for a long time. Now we've got these Bastards! Here we are. And here is a short break to think about that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The town of Vessel, on the other side of the river, was not a welcoming sight as it had been bombed and shelled to rubble. You mentioned that earlier. But they soon passed through the grim devastation into the German countryside, heading in the first instance for their rendezvous at the village of Bunen. Now, the ground is quite soft. I mean, it's that time of year, March, isn't it? And uh, this is one of the disadvantages. There's always disadvantages. The comet has a bit of a tendency to bog down in, in muddy conditions. And from the- this isn't really reflected in this podcast, but I want to make it clear. This is an, a problem that they have to deal with throughout the next fair, well, the next two months. Spring, isn't it? It's wet, sploshy. Not as splashy as a rhino. On the 30th of March, they approached the village of Legden. Uh, in the lead were the comets commanded by Lieutenants Eric Lamont and Charles Workman. And he says this. As we went through, they put out white things in the window. The washing, as we used to say, to show that there were no troops in the area. It had been, fair, it had been fairly straightforward. Eric Lamont and I came up to this village, Legden, and there was no washing up. No sign of surrender. We went into the village square and then suddenly the place erupted with SS with small arms coming out of the houses. They were right round us. The tank machine gun hadn't got the freedom of movement that we needed to dispose of this opposition. We decided, let's get out of here and sort these guys out. We both got out with our crews with machine guns, Brens and Sten guns and just did old John Wayne. Just shot away, banging on. I came round a corner and ran into this guy. He shot at me. Luckily he missed. I had a Bren gun and I didn't miss it was the first time I'd ever killed a chap face to face wow well yeah thinking about it it might well be might not it? like John Wayne really I think uh, I think uh, Marilyn or whatever his name was uh, evaded uh, being called up so hmm I never realised SS had short arms alright now the crew scattered hand grenades all around to force the Germans away from the tanks. It might have ended badly, but just in time, the rest of the squadron came barreling into the square and to their rescue. But they did suffer casualties. And that's it. This I want to make this clear throughout this. That I mean, it's all we're all advancing to victory, and it's all easy. But there's still people being uh, wounded and killed, aren't there? There's a drip, drip of casualties. Yeah, and every man lost was someone's best mate. But they had to carry on regardless. Well, they moved forward to cross the Ems River at Meetham, and, and not far away, you, you'll know this area better than me, in front of them lay the Dortmund-Ems Canal, which is another sploshy thing. Now, this would prove a more challenging prospect. Although the bridge had been destroyed, a squadron of the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment... Oh, just, oh how easy is that to say? 3rd uh, Royal Tank Regiment. I just want third to have a port. RTR. Yes, as opposed to Fife D4 Fars or Fife and... Hmm. Now, they'd been ferried across and hammered out a bridgehead with the help of the Shropshire Light Infantry. Also easy to say. (laughs) Yes. Now, within a few hours, the Royal Engineers... Easy to say. ...had managed to improvise a workable temporary bridge and the second Fife and Fourfar Yeomanry... Fourfar. Not easy to say. Oh, is it Fourfar? ...were ordered across. Yes, so much against his will, uh, Steel Brown at this stage has been left out of battle. L-O-B, Gary, lobbed. <laughs> uh, and he now finds himself cl- rather close to the sort of wrong sort of action for him. So what happens? Well, I'm going to tell you. I do love uh, William Steel Brownie, or Steel Brownie. My left out of battle tanks pulled off into a field about 300 yards away. <laughs> 
on the near side. The den was terrific with our 25-pounder shells whistling over our heads and our forward tanks getting to work on the wooded ridge. That's the other side of the canoe. A number of fuck, fuck wolves... 190s appeared overhead, intent on destroying the bridge. Our anti-aircraft guns opened up on them, as well as every kind of suitable gun in the area, including a Bren gun fired from the shoulder by a very small sapper. It was too heavy for him and kept wandering down till the bullets were spraying us. With this and other shit flying around, I shut down all the hatches and just sat there. Four enemy planes were shot down, and the only bomb that landed near the bridge was a dud. Well, now when they got across the bridge in the late afternoon, the left out of battle tanks lagered up close to the bridge when there was another air attack. And this is Trooper John Buchanan of 4 Troop A Squadron. As dusk came, the German planes came over. An assortment of planes, there were dive bombers, fighter bombers there, as if they were scraping the barrel to try and destroy this bridge. There were ATAC guns, one double barrel gun was straddled, straddled by bombs, but it came out smiling. It was still firing away. They weren't aiming at me, they were aiming at the bridge. So I got out on the turret and I got my Bren gun. I stood on the turret and I was hosing them. This one came and I hit it. The tracer bullets hit it, but you could see them bouncing off. It must have been armoured. A dive bomber is armoured at the front. I said, stuff this. Then I saw coming from its belly this big black bomb. I looked at it and it was coming straight for me. I dived into the back bin, which was open. I'd taken the Bren gun out. This red-hot Bren landed on top of me. My hands were all burned. There was one massive explosion. I opened my eyes, looked up, and here's this black mountain of dirt descending on me. The tank was covered with about two inches of dirt. That's what saved us. The fact we were in a ploughed field. It was soft and the bomb had buried itself in before exploding. If it had been hard ground, it would have blown up me, the tank and everything. So the bridge survives unscathed despite these attacks. And so did the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomany. Uh, but several air German aircraft were supposed to have been shot down. And one Messerschmitt 109, it lands just 200 yards from the 5th Fire's headquarters. Uh, what's this symptomatic of, would you say? Well, it's symptomatic that the Luftwaffe was, Luftwaffe was no longer the mighty engine of war that had driven the Blitzkrieg to such successes earlier in the year. I was a bit distracted because I don't think that the 109 lands to understand. I think it ploughs into the earth, Pete. Yeah, that's probably... That, that's, that's not what I'd call landing. Not to correct you or anything, hyperbole. <laughs> in front of them lay the I'll let you say this next right? there's <laughs> a steep escarpment of the Teutoburger Wald an imposing Brilliant. thickly wooded natural feature that rose to uh, some 1,000 feet above them so it's 30 miles long 2 or 3 miles wide as a ridge uh, why is it in particular a difficult because it's just the physical environment that's dangerous no the uh, pupils from the local NCO's training school were holding this superb defensive position with a grim, if not fanatical, determination. Yeah, when, I've noticed whenever whenever our lads uh, hold things to the death, it's uh, heroic lads. When, when the Germans held it, it's fanatical. <laughs> now, it had been reported that the third RTR, even easier to say, had taken the pass leading up and over the escarpment. But in reality... They'd been stopped dead in their tracks. So the, the second five four five Yomini moved forward to take their place. Now there's only two passable roads across the the what was it called? Teutoburger Wald. Teutoburger Wald. Uh, one goes from uh, Munster to Ivan uh, Puren, and what what's the other road go to? <laughs> you, you're referring to the smaller road through the village of uh, Brockterback up to Holthausen. Yes, that's exactly what I meant. Now, for two days, the fight enraged, but tanks were of limited use in this terrain. Why? Why? Well, although they tried their best, they're blasting away at the edges of the woods. They're just not It's the woods, good. isn't it? It's the woods. It's not open ground, is it? No. Can they not plough their way through the wood? Not really. Well, well, you just described that wood. I mean, it's a thick, yeah. dense wood. Now, so who does the brunt of the firing? I'll tell you something. In my next book, which I can't remember this called, 
<laughs> we're doing the infantry, and we'll be doing the infantry next year in these podcasts, uh, the uh, 16th Durham Light Infantry, if you want to know. But uh, the, the aspect we want to bring forward, we've done the artillery, we've done the tanks, but who suffers worst in this kind of battle? Well, 1st Hereford and 3rd Monmouth, it, it was terrible for The them. infantry. Yeah, they were sucked into the maw of the oh, Gary, woods. Gary, you're a poet. Struggling against a skillful and determined opposition. Not, Even, fanat- not fanatical now. No, they're, they're determined now. Even massed artillery barrages didn't seem to break the cadets' grip on the ridgeline. And this is Sergeant Roy Valance of 4 Troop A Squadron. The infantry and an armoured regiment were held up and we were ordered to go through them and carry on. A Squadron were the leading squadron and 4 Troop were the leading troop. I think I was the leading tank. It was a high ridge and the road went over it. It was densely wooded. We had to approach where the road went up into the hill and wood and we were fired upon. I swung off left immediately in a big circle and put out some smoke. Even as we swung off, we'd swing the turret round and fire up where the gun was firing from. You wouldn't stop, you had to keep moving. Then across the road into a farmyard where we were under cover. The other tanks in the troop all swung off right where the ground was boggy and they got bogged in which rather pleased me. We all fired up there and it stopped firing back. I was ordered to go on foot and see if I could see what was up there. My driver came with me and we crept up by the hedgerows and so on. Couldn't see a thing. After a bit I said, I think we've gone far enough and we went back. It wasn't our role. We felt very naked going up on foot. The infantry suffered dreadful casualties there and I think the Monmouths were disbanded after that with something like 300 casualties. Which is a lot, isn't it? Uh, now, the 54-4s are perhaps a bit lucky. and they're, they're, This is a, a brief uh, involvement, isn't it? It's not long, uh, just two or three days, uh, trying to create across the Tutaboga Wald. And on 3rd of April, the tasks held handed over to 131 Brigade of the 7th Armoured Division, following up there. Remember, the, 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 our Scottish chums are in the 11th Armoured Division. Uh, and it's another three days before they manage to take their objectives. Uh, what happens to the Monmouth, just, uh, just as an aside? Because uh, that's a lot of casualties. What happens to them? Well, they're pulled out of the line and they're replaced by the 1st Cheshire Regiment in the 159th Brigade. Now, meanwhile, on 4th of April, the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment... Oh, okay. Very easy <laughs> to say. ...excelled themselves with a splendid night march to seize a bridge over the Ems-Weezer Canal at Evershade. Just north of Osnabrück... <laughs> Now, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Ionary followed up, but Charlie Workman found to his cost that not all German resistance had been stamped out. He says this, We were moving up on Osnabrück. I was a lead tank on the centre line. Normally the troop leader would be in the middle. You made use of the roads as much as you could until you bumped opposition. Then you got off. We were moving quite fast. We didn't know this, but they'd put a whole bunch of SS into Osnabrück. We got into Osnabrück. We were in narrow streets. The combat had a ring of periscopes right round the turret. So when I saw these guys were firing at us from the houses, I closed down, put the lid down, because normally you'd, you'd be head up uh, outside the turret. A Panzerfaust hit the rim of the turret, shattered the periscopes. It went in both my eyes, so I couldn't see, and I was quite deaf. We were still under fire. They put the infantry in to clear this crowd out. They pulled me out of the tank. And that's, uh, that's, that's why the infantry are there. The infantry rescue them, basically, don't they? Yeah, now the periscopes he's describing were designed to shatter into dust rather than little, uh, little bits. But for a while, it was uncertain how much damage had actually been done to his eyes. Now, Workman, he was therefore evacuated back first to the hospital and then all the way back to Catterick. For him, fighting war was over. And, you know, he's been a great... Uh, I've enjoyed uh, following him through it. Uh, well, it's, I'm sure. He's certainly been one of the characters. He was he, a great character in real life. And he goes on in later and he becomes uh, head of the Territorial Intelligence Corps. Uh, a great man. Great. A very nice man, too. Now, 5th of April, <coughs> progress accelerated, accelerates dramatically. Uh, they, uh, the five and four fires uh, pass through the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment. Uh, uh, at Laverslow, and they're moving alongside the 23rd Hussars. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just, 
in an informal race. This is the competitiveness is all in the British Army. And they're trying to reach what, Gary? The Vesa River. Now, on 7th of April, the whole regiment was moved south to cross the river at Petershagen in the area captured by the 6th Airborne Division. Now, on the morning of the 8th of April, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomanry, uh, they first following behind the advancing 15th, 19th Zars, uh, before they take over the lead in the late afternoon. Now, this is where we get to, we've not had much from him, he's been featured a bit, but Thomas Heald, uh, I interviewed him near Nottingham, and his two troop, uh, A Squadron, they, they make a mark. Uh, uh, with him, there's another young officer in another comet, and that's uh, he's Glaswegian, Gary, uh, the other guy, Lieutenant Norman Miller, who was just 19 years old, Gary. And and both of these officers sort of looked in at, in askance by by the likes of Steel Brownie. Um, I mean, in particular, Miller is a teetotal non-smoker, um, and and you can imagine what by this time veteran. Old Steel Brown, who's about 22, <laughs> thinks of him. Uh, but this next uh, quote from Thomas uh, Heald shows that uh, they're both, Miller and Heald, are the, are the right stuff. There were three tanks in the troop, my own, Norman Miller's, and Derek Collis as the sergeant. We had made up our minds, I think a young officer who's keen makes the difference, that we would go as fast as possible. Apparently, we did 10 miles in an hour continuously firing the whole way, going flat out. If there were hedges down either side, one fired. That's where somebody with a bazooka might hide. There was probably nobody there at all. One fired a tremendous amount. On that basis, with any luck, the first tanks can get through any bazookas. Once the tanks are through, they can deal with any bazookas. It makes the bazooka man's position almost impossible having tanks beyond him. I think that was probably the longest advance by anyone in the Fife and Fourth for Yeomanry in the whole of the campaign. Certainly, if one went fast enough, providing there were no mines on the road, you could get through most things. And and before, who would you have expected to be doing this? I mean, you you remember remember well, when we had the, the blue, Operation Blue Coat? Yeah, yeah, it would have been, who would it have been? It would have been Steel Brownie himself. He uh, was but, the charger, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, but there's a new generation of young thrusting officers thrusting themselves into battle. There were. And there were sudden violent clashes. There were, yeah. But they didn't last long before the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry were back on the endless road. We're on the uh, road, you know. As suddenly as it began, resistance would collapse as the Germans either surrendered or pulled out. Yeah, they're not meeting... Major, this is small groups of Germans making a bloody nuisance of themselves, uh, and they are being very brave. Of course, uh, no, that's not to denigrate them at all, uh, but but it's painful the losses the the lads are suffering. Our lads now they're uh, <clears throat> they're then given a rest. They're pulled back to uh, where is that regimental lager? Um, oh, you mean the regimental lager at Esperka? Yes. And they go there on the 10th of April. <clears throat> now, here there's a, a bit of an unfortunate event, isn't there? Which, uh... Yeah, and it removes one of the key characters from the regiment. And this is Major John Gilmore of the regimental headquarters. Major Sir John Gilmore, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a sir. Yeah, he was, he's a, he was an amazing chap. Um, at the end of the day, it was my job as second in command to get the regiment parked for the night. I'd parked my own tank and had gone over to where A Squadron were coming in to tell them where to go. We were still worried about air attack, and so we tended to harbour under trees if we could. I was directing A Squadron as to where they were to park, when unfortunately somebody fired a gun in one of the tanks. The gun hadn't been unloaded. The HE shell hit a tree soon after it left the gun, and it burst. I got a bit in the groin, and one of the drivers of the tanks, alongside where I was, was actually killed in the tank. I was hitting the groin, and the whole thing was bleeding fairly profusely. I didn't really know what had happened. I was taken down to the field hospital. Now, this is this is just just a very sad accident, it is. And uh, a lot of the lads talk quite movingly about it. We haven't put so many of that. But this is it was Tommy Smith, Private Tommy Smith, was a driver killed. Um, and it it's just... And it's entirely random, isn't it? It's 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 a tragedy. And this is what uh, again, Lieutenant Thomas Heald. He was in a squadron, two troop, two troop, a squadron. What does uh, how does he describe this accident? Trooper Smith was my driver at the time. There'd been a lot of action during the day, but we were in reserve. Eventually, we went into Lager with the regimental headquarters, 
It wasn't a proper lager. It was in a sort of farmyard, and it was very close to Belson. We came into lager, and there had been reports of a tiger tank about. We were just getting out of our tank. Smith was half in and half out of the driving hatch. Sidaway, the co-driver, he was getting out. I was half out the turret. I think Mackenzie, my wireless operator, was half out. We were just getting ready to dismount. The colonel's tank, or the second-in-command's tank, had not cleared his guns. The gunner obviously pressed the trigger, and it fired a high-explosive shell. It was only 15 yards from us, which hit the tree immediately beside my tank. I just had the tree on top of me, but Sidaway and Tommy Smith both were hit by shrapnel. The regimental second-in-command, Major John Gilmore, was hit by shrapnel and wounded. Nobody realised what had happened. They thought, well, here's the Tiger tank arrived. It was just one of those accidents which was very unfortunate. Now, Gilmore, he's evacuated and he has an exploratory operation in a Belgian hospital. Um, He was unlucky that he'd been wounded in that way. After all he'd done, remember when he was hunting that that, uh, Tiger tank up uh, in Operation Blucher? All the things he'd done... And then it's a silly accident. Uh, but in some ways, he's lucky that not too much damage is actually caused um, down there. Down there, Gary, what do you mean? <laughs> well, he explains himself, and this is what Major John Gilmore says. I was in hospital for several days before I was operated on. It was such a small bit of shell that they left it in. As I said, they would do more harm than good digging it out. I can confirm that because years later I had an operation for varicose veins and the surgeon had me x-rayed before he did the operation and the x-ray showed up the bit of shell in the groin on the top of my leg. So Gilmore's flown back to recuperate back in the UK. His departure caused a considerable reshuffle in the senior ranks of the regiment. Yeah, he would do. Uh, well, who, who, who takes his place? Oh. Firstly, Major Hutchinson, he moves up to second in command, but he's not best pleased. Pinky's sort of blue? Pinky is sort of blue and says this. As a senior squadron leader, Colonel Scott asked me to become his second in command, so I had to abandon the squadron. I would much rather have stayed with A squadron. It was for me a bit of an anticlimax to be relegated into being a second in command and doing nothing really very much except following behind the leading squadron as a general rule. When we were operational, Colonel Scott was very much in command and directing operations. Now, Hutchison's replaced by a, a Captain Desmond Shute, who, who doesn't really appear in, in, in anything really. Uh, uh, I'm afraid we, we don't have his records. Uh, and he, he takes over A Squadron and Steel Brownie, Captain Steel Brownie, became a squadron second in command. And he doesn't like that either because he's now uh, also slightly more administrative and less thrusting. Um, so so we're, we're coming to, we're, you know, we've only, I think, got one more episode to go of this. But what's happened? The campaign, it, it, is it degenerating? What's happening? Well, it seems to be just uh, one river crossing after another. Nothing ever seemed to change. They advanced along the roads, encountered opposition with a sudden blast of a Panzerfaust or an 88mm gun. Call up the infantry and then deploy to the flanks and whiz off to the flanks to encircle the opposition. And the Germans would either have left, left, got out of it, or, or they'd be caught. Yeah, and uh, then they'd pursue the remnants into the middle distance. Germany itself seemed an endless slog. The Germans, doomed to defeat. Yeah, they Most are. of them keep on fighting. So the days sort of muddle together, and, and that's noticeable in the oral history, that they've been through so much together, so much, and it, it all starts to blur together a bit in this phase. Uh, one thing, what, what one point we both think, though, what, what's that? Well, that men are still dying, and they're still being maimed. So... It, it's it's not the peace isn't declared till it's declared, especially not when the Germans are fighting. I think what you mean is it's not over until it's over. Oh, no, I was. I know you're now thinking of something else. Fat ladies and singing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pete. That was uh, that was rather harrowing at times, but uh, a, a really good episode. Thank you very much. Cheers, John. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?